Welcome to Voices of the Belt and Road podcast, brought to you by the Belt and Road Advisory, your professional advisors on all matters concerning the Belt and Road Initiative. Voices of the Belt and Road is our flagship podcast, and with each episode, we'll hear the personal stories of people who are part of the Belt and Road Initiative. The aim of this podcast is to demystify the initiative by interviewing a broad array of people whose lives are impacted day in and day out by the world's largest cross-border trade initiative and infrastructure build-up. On this podcast, in addition to university researchers, think tank experts, and policymakers, you can also hear from business people, workers, and countless others involved in the Belt and Road. You'll hear people tell their own personal stories in their own languages, because at the end of the day, the Belt and Road Initiative is changing people's lives, and we want you to hear it from them. Please enjoy this week's podcast, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. I'm your host, Greg Stetz, and I'm extremely excited to welcome our today's guest, Professor Martin Jacques, a renowned expert on China and the author of the famous bestseller, When China Rules the World. Martin, it is a pleasure to have you with us. I'm delighted to do the interview. And of course, many of our listeners are already familiar with your activity but please tell us a little bit about your background and how did you first get interested in Belt and Road Initiative? Has your perception of the initiative changed over time? Well, I I guess I got interested uh, in Belt and Road more or less from its first uh, announcement or the, the two speeches uh, that Xi Jinping made first on the, um, the land route and then on the... Uh, on the maritime route. I, I mean, I, I, I think that, that it's, that one's understanding of Belt and Road is uh, constantly on the move uh, because it's never been a plan. It's never had a time scale. Uh, it's, never been, it's never had a sort of fixed set of, of clearly stated objectives. Rather, it was an idea. It was a concept. And therefore, uh, it was a moving feast. Uh, and we've had to adjust our thinking about Belt and Road uh, over time uh, as to what's involved. And of course, it's also true, I think, that the Chinese have been shifting their positions on Belt and Road, uh, mainly by constantly extending the idea into new areas. And when it comes to the title of your bestseller book from 2009, when China Rules the World, the End of the Western World, and the Birth of a New Global Order. It really makes a strong statement. Uh, now, nine years later, would you say that Belt and Road Initiative is the vehicle for this new global order? And what will this order be like? Well, of course, um, the, the title was never intended to be meant literally, uh, because no country ever has ruled the world and no country ever will. Uh, the idea was to capture in a, a sort of very typical phrase in English uh, the idea that China would emerge over time quite quickly actually uh, in, some, in some respects as uh, the world's most influential and, and powerful country and uh, in effect replace the United States in that position. Um, and uh, and to, to think of China's rise uh, in a much in much broader terms than had been conceived. Uh, I mean, w when I 
was writing the book and it was published, basically China's rise had been overwhelmingly uh, uh, seen in economic terms uh, around the world, certainly in the West, and, uh, and even in China itself. It was seen as essentially an, an economic uh, an economic process, and my argument was that um, actually the rise of China would, in time, be seen increasingly in much broader terms: political, intellectual, moral, uh, military, cultural, and so on. That China would, and China would, in that context, also see itself in very different, uh, in those broader terms. And I think that is actually exactly what has happened. That uh, uh, actually, I was regarded, I think, probably as rather, you know, optimistic. Uh, uh, but uh, it's, to be honest with you, it's happened quicker than I expected. And so, would you say that Belt and Road Initiative is the vehicle for this new global order, for all those changes that are uh, coming as China rises? Yes, I think that uh, Belt and Road has become absolutely central to how to view and think about China's growing influence in the world. Um, I mean, it already it was clear uh, uh, before uh, uh, 2012, uh, probably one can date it from around the turn of the century, that China attached particular importance to its relationship with its hinterland, which at that time tended to mean, in particular, Southeast Asia. Northeast Asia was problematic because it was still in the thrall of the Cold War, really. Um, and so China, China clearly uh, viewed its relationship with East Asia as a... Uh, as, uh, as absolutely central. Now, what Belt and Road, I think, uh, did was to enormously extend this idea, uh, both in terms of geography uh, and in terms of uh, economics, and I would also argue in terms of politics as well, in terms of its political uh, implication. So that Belt and Road, in a way, became the kind of framework for uh, China's view of its future role. Now, of course, it didn't embrace uh, every part of the world. Um, China's been very flexible, actually, anyway, about Belt and Road, because it certainly includes Africa, and in some respects it can even include Latin America. In other words, it could be extended to most of the developing world. But, for example, it did not include the United States. I mean, it's never always wanted the United States to be involved and so on, but the United States was far away geographically from, uh, from really where the heartland uh, of, uh, of Belt and Road. And I think that is, that is not insignificant with regard to the meaning and implication of Belt and Road. So what then, in your view, would be the benchmark of success of Belt and Road Initiative? Well, of course, the Chinese have uh, clearly avoided uh, ever falling into the trap of uh, having a, a, a clear measure of success or failure. And uh, I think one has to... Uh, 
uh, up to a point at least, accept that and enter into, the, into that spirit with regard to it. Um, and uh, I think that um, it's going to move, it's going to have, I mean, absolutely integral to Belt and Road will be uh, failures as well as successes. I think it's absolutely impossible to have such a broad concept such an extraordinary geopolitical, geoeconomic and geopolitical view of the future um, and regard it to be smooth sailing because that, I think that is quite impossible. I mean, um, uh, Belt and Road is going to suffer uh, serious setbacks uh, on the way. I think that is inevitable. Uh, really, the question is, um, uh, can can those setbacks be seen in the in the context of some, something which is broadly speaking successful or perhaps even in some what well, in some respect I think uh, very successful and that's the great challenge uh, for the whole for the whole program. Um, now uh, I I think if if, if Belt and Road it uh, provides a framework for China's uh, growing um, influence uh, in. Uh, across a large part of the of, of the Eurasian landmass, um, then it will be uh, it will be essentially regarded uh, as a success, success. But it's a slow burn, really. I think it's a slow burn. It's not. It, it, Ten years would be too early to make a call on it. We we can make some observations where the successes and the the failures and so on. But this is. For, for Belt and Road to be successful in the terms in which I think it's being conceived, then the minimum timescale is probably something like half a century. Uh, is Belt and Road initiative Chinese in your, in your view, or is it multinational or international initiative? Uh, who, if anyone, owns Belt and Road initiative and has the power to define what it means? Is it always going to be China? Well, so far, you'd have to say it's got to be first and foremost China. Uh, it's not that China uh, is, um, uh, what shall we say, enjoys uh, a sort of total power over it, because that's clearly not true. Uh, Belt and Road depends essentially, in the first instance, on a series of bilateral arrangements between China and other countries. And in some cases, for example, take Central Asia, it depends on the relationship, uh, on a multilateral relationship between China and the various countries uh, of Central Asia. So I think that in different, I mean, or, or, or take the question of uh, Southeast Asia. I mean, uh, here you have a relationship between China and various Southeast Asian countries, but also ASEAN is clearly an important voice in relationship to it. So uh, I think that um, uh, this is. Quite complex question. Um, uh, China, it, it was China's idea. Uh, it is the fund a fundamental framework for Chinese foreign policy. Uh, China is clearly overwhelmingly the major funder of Belt and Road and is likely to co to continue to be. Uh, and so China, that will give China a great deal of power authority uh, over its evolution um, so I think this is a this is this is going to be quite an interesting and complex question as to how to what extent uh, China uh, has uh, authority over it 
take another example, the relationship with Russia. I mean, clearly China economically is a lot more powerful uh, than Russia, uh, and that the gap has been growing apace over the years. But Russia is extremely important, in my view, to the success of Belt and Road and to uh, China's position in the, on the Eurasian landmass. And therefore, although the, uh, there's great, a great economic imbalance between the two, actually uh, Russia's collaboration, I think, is very important to China. And Martin, as you are widely credited for your prediction of China's rising significance, we just have to ask, how do you see the trade war between China and US and those tensions in general? How are they going to unfold and what role will Belt and Road Initiative play within that context? Well, the first thing I would say is that I was not, I'm not surprised by the trade war. As soon as Trump first went in for the Republican primary, I thought that he would win and I thought he would become president. And I believe uh, what he was saying. I believe I, uh, many people didn't. I, I always took him at face value that he was going to be really a very new broom. And that's exactly what's happened. And there's been a fundamental line of continuity in Trump's position. Therefore, the first conclusion I would draw is that, you know, this is going to, that we are now in a new era. And the new era as, de, you know, as defined by Trump, which is a new kind of American foreign policy, a new kind of relationship with China, and so on. Uh, is it? And many people interpreted Trump essentially as a transactional politician. I think that was that was he is a transactional politician, but I think he's much more than that. So I expect this period to last uh, uh, quite a while. I think even if Trump got defeated in the next presidential election, many of the elements of this trade war are likely to persist under even a democratic presidency. I, I, I would not be at all surprised by that. So I think we have to think about this in a new way. What is it about? Essentially, I think the reason for it is the failure uh, 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 of um, uh, the globalization strategy insofar as a large section of American uh, working people are concerned who've done badly, their living standards have stagnated and so on, they're deeply dissatisfied, so they want something uh, different. Secondly, I think it's a recognition that America is in decline, which is something that Americans have been in denial of, American leadership, uh, for example, the liberal establishment have been in denial of for a long time. America is actually in decline, and it's suddenly woken up to China, not simply being, as it thought 10 years ago, or even less than that, that China was an economic, uh, was an economic challenge, but not more widely. No. There's a recognition now that America's sort of hegemonic position in the world is under challenge from China, and a desire to try and constrain the rise of China and uh, transfer, transform the terms of the engagement between them in order to achieve that objective. Uh, personally, I think it's going to fail, but I think that's we have to understand uh, America's position in those kind of terms. How does it relate to Belt and Road? Well, I think that what we're beginning to see 
is um, a growing um, uh, uh, growing restrictions on the relationship on the relationship between China and the United States. The United States wants to make China's economic uh, position more difficult. It wants to exclude, uh, and, and it's so far exceeding. If you look at the figures for Chinese investment in the United States this year, it wants to uh, uh, essentially define anything that comes from China, or most things that come from China in security terms, and stop it. Um, so you can see at the beginnings of a kind of estrangement, a kind of bifurcation going on. Um, and I don't know how far this uh, is going to go. I don't think it's a simple, so should we see simply as a return to the Cold War? I'd be surprised if it went that far. But certainly those tendencies in the situation uh, are, are evident. And um, now, but I think the America is just not in the, you know, America was all powerful compared with the Soviet Union. It was, um, although we think of the Cold War as we do, uh, 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 equal adversaries, they were only equal in the sense that they both had nuclear weapons and they could deliver those nuclear weapons. But the economies were never sim similar. You know, I mean, Russia was always much weak. Soviet Union was, uh, was much weaker uh, than the United States. Now, in this situation now, although in some respect, of course, the American economy is still much more developed than that of China, China is much more an equal of the United States. And uh, therefore, um, uh, uh, I, I think it's, it's, going, it's much more difficult for America to say, okay, we just exclude China, in, as happened in the Cold War. Uh, you know, we'll have, a, we'll have a, a parallel set of global institutions, uh, and ours will be dominant, as indeed they were, of course. Um, I think that's much more difficult now, because America needs China. American companies need the Chinese market. The Chinese market is already as big as the American market in space of the next, I don't know, next 10 years and so on. Probably the Chinese market will be getting on for twice the size of the American market. So how do you exclude successfully a country like that from your global, your global stage? I think the Americans will find this extremely difficult to do. And if they do try and do it, it will be at great cost to the United States. Now, this brings us back to Belt and Road. Belt and Road will be, is, is the sort of framework, strategy uh, for China, uh, China's rise, for its underlying strategy of Belt and Road, which is to transform the de particularly the developing countries within the Eurasian landmass. This is a huge strategy. And America is, by and large at the moment, choosing to ignore it. Uh, if it carries on ignoring it, it will be at great cost to the United States, at least in the long run. One hope is that the Americans will at some point decide to be part of it. And I think that the more countries that are part of Belt and Road, particularly the United States and Western Europe, then the more important and successful Belt and Road can be in general, certainly from a Chinese point of view, but also, I think, other countries, United States and Western Europe in this context, will gain a great deal from it. I see. And uh, I just uh, have to follow up on that. So how would you see the role of EU and Russia? Because those are two other very important actors that, that you mentioned throughout, throughout our discussion. How would you see them playing? Are they going to have to choose sides or are they going to play with both US and China? 
I think that the European, the vision of the European Union is still unclear to me. Um, they, in, they're, 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 they so far have failed to endorse Belt and Road. Um, they, they're, they're interested in it. Of course, some very important European companies are involved in some degree in Belt and Road. Um, but they're, they're sort of, the temptation, uh, and I think largely the reality is still to stand on the sidelines as, as, uh, uh, as minor, relatively minor players and therefore predominantly spectators uh, in the process. Um, personally, I think this is a big mistake uh, for the European Union because the European Union needs new sources of growth. Uh, and it is part of the Eurasian landmass. It's a fundamental part of the Eurasian landmass, or it should be a fundamental part. It should be a fundamental player in the, uh, in the Eurasian landmass. So I think that um, uh, Belt and Road offers the, the EU countries um, a, a, a new kind of future. But the difficulty is that you know, Europe's a continent, well, at least the western parts of Europe, are, have looked for so long westwards across the Atlantic that they are, they are, um, they don't, they, they just are not used to looking eastwards. And this is exactly what they're going to have to do. Now, of course, on the doorstep of western Europe is central and eastern Europe, which does have a different attitude on this. I mean, it is much more tempted by and interested in and already involved in Belt and Road than ever the Western part of Europe is. So I think that Europe's going to be quite torn, torn uh, over this, including being torn in somewhat uh, different uh, directions. As far as Russia is concerned, this, I think, is a very important question. Um, if Russia... Uh, uh, it, I mean, the relationship between China and Russia for a very, very long historical period has not been very strong, has not been very good. It's had uh, a lot of problems. Uh, Russia, historically, traditionally, ever since really Peter the Great, has tended to look westwards rather than eastwards. Now, we're in, I think, a kind of new situation in that Russia... Uh, Partly uh, as a result of the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the response of the West to that collapse, um, the taking of NATO up to its borders, um, and then you know Russia being uh, in some ways undecided about its own geopolitical role. I think that this is leading to an historic shift in the Russian outlook. I think that uh, Russia is now looking eastwards more than it has probably ever done for an extremely long historical period of time. Um, and uh, one can see that in uh, the way in which uh, there's been uh, quite a rapprochement and a series of important economic agreements over oil and gas and so on uh, between China and, uh, and Russia. You know, I think that I would make the general, I mean, Turkey's, fits into this pattern as well. You know, I mean, Turkey, for uh, ever since uh, Ataturk and so on, has, you know, looked westwards increasingly uh, around the time of the First World War and the, at the end of the Ottoman Empire. 
But now you can see that Turkey is increasingly looking eastwards and is, uh, you know, has emphasized its relationship with Belt and Road and wants to link the middle, middle corridor uh, proposal project uh, with, with Belt and Road. Um, and the present uh, growing conflicts with the United States and its uh, decline of Turkey's interest in the European Union, all a part of this big shift. We shouldn't be surprised by this. I mean, you know, what's happening is the center of gravity of the world is shifting from the West to the East. The center of gravity of the global economy now is probably somewhere, you know, uh, around the Arabian Peninsula and steadily moving East. So in this situation, countries are shifting their terms of reference, are shifting their uh, their perspectives and looking east. And I think that Belt and Road will be a probably a very profound drive in this process. Thank you. Uh, that's it for today's podcast. Martin, it was a pleasure to talk with you and learn about your insights on Belt and Road Initiative and its role in the shifting geopolitics. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you very much for the interview. this week's Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. If you want to learn more about the Belt and Road Initiative, check out our website at beltandroad.ventures. That's Belt and Road, one word, no spaces, and dot ventures, B-E-N-T-U-R-E-S. On the website, you can subscribe to our weekly Belt and Road Bulletin and also follow our Belt and Road Advisory social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. That way, you'll always be up to date on what is happening on the Belt and Road. Thanks for tuning in and see you next week.